Remarkable advances in science and medicine have steadily increased our life expectancy. However, aging is also correlated with neurodegenerative diseases, and their incidence is expected to rise significantly in the coming years. Research has made strides in understanding the risk factors and mechanisms of these diseases, but we are still working on treatments and hopefully even prevention. What makes these diseases so challenging is that in the majority of cases they are sporadic, with no known cause, at least not one that we can yet identify. But what if we aren't looking at the problem broadly enough? Perhaps classifying neurodegeneration as an age-related disease is too limited a view. What if symptoms were actually present much sooner and in unexpected ways? Today we sit down with Dr. Deanna Benson, professor of neuroscience at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai here in New York City. There, she studies the formation of synapses and their plasticity using state-of-the-art imaging techniques to understand how secret formation is affected by Parkinson's disease, a neurodegenerative disorder. We discuss if it's possible to detect Parkinson's in young adulthood, the progress that her lab has made in understanding the mechanism of Parkinson's, and the advice she has for young scientists hoping to leave their own mark on the scientific world. You're listening to Neuron Air, brought to you by the next generation of neuroscientists at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in Bronx, New York, who explore your brain's phenomena, one scientific adventure at a time. My position is I'm a typical academic neuroscientist. I'm a professor of neuroscience at the Icon School of Medicine, which is a standard traditional academic neuroscience position. And uh, my research has morphed over the years. And so I consider myself a developmental biologist. I have really focused in my career on um, mechanisms of synaptogenesis. But more recently, I have looked at how that kind of developmental profile impacts what is typically thought of as a late onset neurodegenerative disorder, which is Parkinson's disease. Um, And I study this from a developmental perspective. Let's quickly introduce your hosts for today's episode, Rihanna and Joanna. Hi, my name is Rihanna Lobu. I'm currently a fourth year MSTP student at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And uh, I'm a too many years to count PhD, uh, former PhD student I just defended a couple months ago. Well, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I also have a, a, a history in development. So when I was a tech um, and then also now in the current lab. So I was really interested in your work because of this kind of neurodevelopmental aspect. And there are some um, you know, studies at Einstein that were also looking at something, something similar as kind of a, a novel a, approach and different angle to your generation. How does the environment at Mount Sinai help answer the questions that your lab studies about Parkinson's disease? So there are quite a few people who, there are a few developmental biologists, but I think even more relevant for Parkinson's disease, there are several labs that study molecular mechanisms, but there's also a really good solid uh, neurology group that is focused not just on Parkinson's disease, but on Parkinson's uh, patients carrying the same gene mutation that we've been looking at in mice. And so these are, in particular, there's um, Rachel Sanders Pullman and uh, Susan Bressman. And for the last several years, they have recruited uh, patients and families that are either carriers that don't have Parkinson's or that are uh, people with the carriers who have developed Parkinson's disease. And they've been a really 
valuable resource for us to kind of choose the directions that we're, we're going in. Does that mean that you're looking at what makes the carriers not express the symptoms of PD? So they have done, one of the things that we found most exciting early on was they have, uh, they published some work doing MRIs in people who were carriers and not yet, not yet or not um, having Parkinson's disease. And these people were generally a little younger, um, but when compared to um, people without the mutation, they found that there were differences in connectivity between the cortex and the striatum. And we found that those differences in connectivity were exciting. They were kind of, they meshed well with our data and they suggested that there may be kind of changes in connectivity that might occur during development as a consequence of the gene that perhaps raises your vulnerability to the disease. I see. Okay. So this is non-manifesting carriers in the sense that it's not yet that they're too, yeah. too, young, too, too young, young for the classic symptoms. I mean, the mutation we've been looking at, the LERC2G2019S mutation, some patients never get Parkinson's disease. It's one of these that the risk increases with age so that when you're very old, um, there have been some studies that suggest that the risk is as high as 80%, but others say it's as low as 25%, but still 25% is significant. It kind of relates to your work, Rihanna, a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually studying some risk variants present within um, a promoter and how it might affect the protein translation of GPNMB glycoproteins and they have each risk variant probably has a very small risk, but the idea is that if you combine them over time, it might be able to be used as a diagnostic factor or um, other possible treatments long, long term. Yeah, exactly. As a Emma, as a MD PhD, it's just like light bulbs go off hearing how you're making this transition between the science that you're doing and then actually bringing in the patients and really making that connection happen within basic science, which I, I feel like is not always that common to see such a clear connection. So that's really exciting to hear. Yeah, um, so many labs study Parkinson's disease from the genetics to behavior. And although the field has made a lot of progress, we still don't fully understand the origins, especially for the sporadic cases. So how is your lab's approach unique? And what are the major questions you are hoping to answer? Yeah, and so as you were just mentioning, a lot of these diseases are multi-risk kind of factor, and Parkinson's disease is no exception. And so there's, I think most would agree now that there are genetic components and environmental components, and in some people, those genetic components are sufficient, and in other people, the environmental components are sufficient, but for most, it's probably a mix of factors. Um, one thing that's been very interesting to me is that this, the gene mutation that we've been looking at in the gene encoding LERC2 kinase, um, it is one of the most common mutations affiliated with Parkinson's disease um, genetically. The more people are genotyping patients with Parkinson's, the more it's showing up. But there was a really interesting study done maybe a couple of years ago. Um, I know Mark Cookson was part of it, and I should have looked up all of the authors, but they found that um, in sporadic PV, increased expression of LERC2 was more common, suggesting that there's an increase in kinase activity even in the sporadic cases 
that increases their risk in ways that aren't really well understood yet. But there's this notion that it, this, this risk factor penetrates a wider group than those people that just have the mutation alone. Um, there are also some interesting hints that other gene mutations appear to be in the same pathway, either upstream or downstream, that make you think that there's something about this pathway that's important. So even, even though I'm studying one gene mutation, I think that the outcomes are relevant to a broader swath. Um, and then just this idea of looking at early risk and can we mitigate that early risk in a way that might reduce risk over the lifetime of a person, that would be really exciting. That is very exciting. Thank you for sharing. So when you say the, the lurk increased expression, this is of the wild type? Yeah. Okay. And would those be lump kind of categorized in, into the genetic cases or would they be categorized as sporadic? So they would be categorized, I believe, as sporadic because the LERC2 mutation I'm looking at is a mutation that specifically raises kinase activity. The idea would be that if you've just had an increase in expression, the impact would also be an increase in kinase activity, but it's not categorized as a, as a gene mutation, or um, I don't think that they have been categorizing them as LERC2 patients. Okay, interesting. So that all boils back either way to the genetics, right? Which are present with us from conception. So Parkinson's is known as an age-related disease, but your work suggests that it could have an early developmental origin. I don't know if it's fair to say it's embryonic or if it's early developmental kind of postnatal. Um, so what does that exactly mean in terms of development that you talk about? And um, what are those implications for patients down the road and the research that's conducted around it? Yeah, and so for, I mean, specifically for our case, LERC2 is a protein that's, I mean, LERC2 is a gene that the protein is expressed mostly postnatally. It comes on early, but it's at very low levels. And for the most part, it comes on coincident with synaptogenesis, which initially piqued my own interest. I thought for sure okay. it would be a driver for synaptogenesis. It doesn't seem to do that. Um, we looked hard for it, um, but it seems to be having its biggest impact during this postnatal developmental phase, which is a phase of development that you will be aware of, of course, that it, it's like when critical periods happen, when um, circuits are forming and activity kind of modulates those circuits in ways that are responsive to our external world. And so it's a, this kind of highly plastic period, and we think that having this mutation on board during this highly plastic period may actually promote differences in how the circuits develop in ways that uh, impact how the circuits work. So I just see differences because it's not like people having these mutations are in any way, um, they do not show any kind of learning disabilities or anything like that. So it's not like it's a a damaging kind of life-threatening mutation early on. It just seems to make the brain respond differently or maybe solve tasks differently, um, that they choose a different route to kind of solve a problem. And I do know the work that you were citing from the Huntington's disease project, which I find incredibly fascinating. Were either of you involved in that? No, no. Uh, I, I knew the people who were 
uh, if that counts for anything, but otherwise, no. Yeah. So this was some work from, I know, Mark Miller's group, um, but uh, there was a multiple author paper, but it was really exciting to us because it paralleled kind of what we were thinking that if you could even briefly during development express the potent terrible Huntington's disease gene and then turn it off, just having it on during early development was sufficient to cause the risk for, in this case, basal ganglia degeneration later. And I thought that is exactly what we were thinking is that somehow during development, we might be sowing the seeds of, of an increased risk. And if we could identify that and mitigate that risk early, the population may be more resilient to the disease. And I guess along kind of along those lines, if these diseases actually do show phenotype earlier than we originally thought, does that mean that we can study these age-related diseases more readily without having to mimic aging through animal models and cell culture? Yeah, it, you know, it does bring, I mean, I think that a lot of people have um, gotten very excited about like neural stem cell re research and thinking, and now I'm working in human cells and everything's solved. And then there's a whole host of other people who say, ah, they're not age, they're not an aging model at all. I think that there are a lot of fundamental mechanistic things that can be asked and answered in these models that just the genes, um, if there are genes that are mutated that are drivers for the disease, it's impossible, I think, to think that they don't regulate development and activity over the course of a lifetime. And not to address these things earlier or to mitigate these factors earlier, I think is like ignoring half the problem. My, my project, that's like, that's the basis of my project. So I hope that's the case. I don't know if it's wishful thinking, but if you could turn on the mutation for a short period of time and have a negative consequence later on, could you intervene for that short period of time and have a positive effect later on? So we're trying this. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't gotten an answer yet, but the idea was um, for the studies that we had, that were the most potent kind of form of manipulation that we have is to, to cause stress. And these stressful experiences um, we were not doing and we were doing in young adult animals. And so the idea is that we didn't wanna do anything that stressed the animals early on because we thought that would be an experimental confound. And so what we have been trying to do, and so far it looks like it will work, is we have been introducing a LERC2 kinase inhibitor into the chow. So this is um, some work that Andy West did um, and we just got chow from him. And, um, and this is when the animals are, let's see, we've been doing it from P14 to the time of weaning. And so for about seven days where we think that this would be most effective, we give the mother this chow, the mom is still feeding the pups and the pups do show uh, decrease in LARC2 kinase activity. And so that's what we showed so far is we were wondering if we could use um, milk as a delivery mechanism to pups to reduce the kinase activity. And that seems to be working and it's not stressful and they eat it at the same level and they gain weight at the same over the same time course. And so using that method, we're hoping to feed a bunch of moms and do these stress paradigms on their pups, which we haven't done yet. 
So are there any other examples that you could foresee potential for, potential for other targets for, for Parkinson's that could have a similar effect? You know, there are, there's another, so there's some data that uh, a gene mutation in BPS 35 also leads to Parkinson's disease. And there's some data that suggests that it exacerbates this kinase activity. So it makes the kinase activity even higher without alert two mutation. And so for that particular one, sure, we could probably try the same thing in that mutant animal and see if we got the same outcome. I don't know if it would be as successful for there, the genes that are affiliated with PD are pretty varied in their function. And a lot of us are trying to figure out what pathway they seem, is there a final common pathway? Is there a higher order pathway that they all kind of share? And we don't know that yet, but the idea would be that if we could target it these pathways early, briefly, maybe we could help change the future. I mean, it's also really scary. I mean, you know, you think of ethical things, if you're actually changing connectivity and stuff, is that going to be a negative or a positive? And so there's for, for animal experiments and to test these hypotheses, the bar is low, but to implement them in humans, particularly children, I think is a, a really frightening thing, but could be incredibly powerful. Okay, so one of your findings is that depression and anxiety can precede the development of Parkinson's disease. Is this any kind of depression? Does depression does this depression have a hereditary link? And do antidepressants help with this risk? So, so we we looked at kind of depressive like phenotypes in mice. Um, other people for for many years have looked at humans and done epidemiological studies and have that support that depression is one of the earliest onset. Um, symptoms, non-motor symptoms that can be detected. And so it, for many years, there was a lack of emphasis on non-motor symptoms. Now it's becoming much more common to look for non-motor symptoms. And so there are a whole host of populations of people mm -hmm. having Parkinson's disease where it really wasn't asked whether or not they were depressive, or it was kind of thought that, yeah, you have Parkinson's disease. I'd be depressed if I had Parkinson's disease too. And so it wasn't really taken as a symptom. And so now I think the data are very, very strong from the clinical side that depression um, can accompany and in particular precede Parkinson's disease. Um, of course, all the people that have depression don't get Parkinson's disease. So it's not like it's a great screening tool for Parkinson's yeah. disease, but, um, and all depression is like, more common in women, but Parkinson's disease is a little more common in men, but there's some suggestion that in LERC2, it's a little different. And so there are, there are a lot of studies that are small, but interesting that kind of uh, show that folks with these, these particular Parkinson's disease mutations have depression related phenotypes. Our mice kind of, kind of fit that model, but not perfectly. So some of their phenotypes are very depressive-like and other phenotypes run counter to that. And so we ended up kind of thinking that our mice, unlike wild-type mice, that if you do particular behaviors or examine particular behaviors, they almost look like wild-type humans, that a certain percentage of, of them become depressive-like and a certain percentage of them become kind of resilient. 
in the LERC2 model, the reaction to stress is just different. So like short-term stress made them all kind of show this depressive-like phenotype with respect to social interaction behaviors, but with a hedonic kind of uh, assay where they were asked to uh, sucrose preference test, they drank more sucrose. They had no, it was not, um, they did not display anhedonia. And so even there wasn't full blown like depression. And those mice also didn't show anxiety like phenotypes. Other people see with other models, anxiety like phenotypes, and they do see that in, in PD patients. And the resilience phenotype hasn't been talked about a lot, but there are longitudinal, I mean, there are some interesting kind of epidemiological studies that pick out all kinds of weird um, personality differences and preferences for like caffeine, smoking, people that smoke are less likely to get Parkinson's disease. People who have more complex jobs are more likely to get Parkinson's disease. Like physicians are more likely to get it. Um, there are a lot so, of these kinds of factors that make me think it's just different. Wait, hold on. What about scientists? <laughs> <laughs> I think they haven't looked at us as a group yet. Um, it's a Swedish scared to look. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but I did 23 and me and I, I looked, I don't have the, the lurk two mutation, but I still don't know if I, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, you're resilient enough to become a, a PI at a major institution. So I don't know. <laughs> you know is that a risk? Level of resilience or, or just like dumb luck. <laughs> so, um, you know, like, like you were saying with the depression, a lot of people have depression and I think it's much more prevalent than Parkinson's if, if, uh, right. So, you know, one could naively argue that, well, that's just coincidence, right? You're going to ha have some percentage of it. Although you say, you did say that the evidence seemed to be strong, but you know, since we're still trying to understand the mechanisms of depression and the different subtypes, is there any particular subtype of depression, assuming that we can even identify it at that scale, that could be linked to Parkinson's, maybe something in the synapse formation or the circuit formation? I, I'm, it's, it's one of these things that I'm not, so I'm not a a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and I'm coming through the back door on this. So my expertise is basically almost that of what I learned from the science times. But um, the, my instinct is that the depression is different, that it's going to be a different, have a slightly different set of features. And part of this is like, they showed this depressive, like phenotype, the mice, but then in another, um, kind of domain, they were drinking more sucrose than the wild type counterparts that had also gone through a stressful experience. And so I think that it, it will categorize differently. And I think it, this, we don't as a, as a field, um, categorize these diseases sufficiently. I mean, depression, we, all of us, particularly in COVID times, know people who have been depressed and people who have major depressive disorder and people who are depressed, but then recover and how different those things are and how different the symptoms are even between two patients, each having major depressive order. So it's not clear to me. I mean, 
I think that it will be a different kind of category of depression, but we just don't know enough to define it. Yeah. The, and the, the resiliency phenotype is really interesting too. Like, is that just a learning and memory issue? Like, I don't think so because we've tested them on um, that. And so I, they do remember fine. Um, it, again, it's like, these are young mice and they're not old mice. They're not showing motor phenotypes. And um, it suggests that perhaps, I mean, you know, this is totally winging it, but we've been thinking that those things that maybe confer a disadvantage with aging may confer an advantage even early on. Um, so what might be help you be resilient and develop tools for focus and complex jobs early on may in fact make you vulnerable to disease later. Um, I don't know, that's kind of the grim side of it, but um, it's, it was so, I mean, it's, it was so profound and we didn't believe it. And we did another cohort um, with the social defeat stress. And we saw exactly the same thing that they were all resilient with the chronic form of social defeat stress. And so the numbers were, were high and they all displayed that kind of resilience. And so it's definitely interesting and it's definitely kind of worth going into deeper, but we have not been able to figure out what the biological mechanism is for it yet. That's great. I All this is super educational. Thank you. Um, 85% of Parkinson's disease is sporadic. How well do you think the models that you've been using predict what's happening in these sporadic cases? Yeah, and so I, I mentioned the thing about the LERC2 activity being higher. We really don't know, but right now the genetic mutations are the kind of best entrance yeah. for us to understand the disease. Yeah. Um, there's also um, a number of people over for many years have looked at some of the um, environmental factors that we know contribute to the yeah. disease, things like paraquat exposure and whatnot. We know that that increases your chance of getting PD. It doesn't guarantee it, but farmers on plots of land that use a lot of paraquat have a greater chance of getting Parkinson's. And so there are some people that have been doing that for years, but these environmental exposures in animal models have proven to be really hard. And it's much easier to do a genetic manipulation and know that everybody has the same manipulation and it's easier to control for. And so for us, it's been an easier way into the disease and the fact that, that humans share it makes it easy too. Um, but how it, whether or not we really are explaining the, well, we're not explaining all of the disease, I'm certain, but it's enough people that it, I think it, it's arguably worth making the effort. Yes, definitely. That makes sense. And we still have so much more to learn about these mutations as this entire discussion has been about. So it makes, I feel like there's a large ground for us to cover before we can get to all the environmental and complex aspects Hopefully our technology will get to the point where we can see the inner mixture of all three. I do have one more scientific question, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So Parkinson's is a very general disorder. It seems like it's in, in some sense, um, a, a number of different symptoms fall under the umbrella of, of Parkinson's. So you know, maybe perhaps through your research, identifying some of these lesser known symptoms like depression and resiliency could define other 
quote, I don't know, causes or symptoms of Parkinson's that perhaps you can look for other uh, either genetic mutations or environmental factors that cause that symptom. So one level, you know, kind of after the, the genetics and then kind of reverse engineer back to a, a deeper underlying cause. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there are a lot of people kind of looking at right now. So LERC2 is one of, one of the most common gene mutations. And I say one of the most, because a few years ago it was the most now a mutation in galactocerebrosidase. So it's GBA. Um, that has become the most common gene mutation. I think it's a little, the penetrance is lower, but many more people have GBA mutations. And with GBA mutations, the uh, progression is faster and it's more often accompanied with dementia. Whereas the LERC2 patient, you they have dementia more often than a patient with no mutation, mm-hmm. but it's far less than GBA. So just those two different uh, disease causing mutations have very clear differences in cognition and cognitive phenotypes. And so we've been thinking about ways that we can compare them directly because we do see in a different series of studies, some differences in uh, a cognitively demanding behavioral task with our LERC2 mice. And we've been thinking of trying to compare it to the GBA mice and maybe over aging or something because the progress of the motor disease in both is somewhat similar mm-hmm. and it hasn't it, so far folks are just starting to try to parse these into very specialized diseases that we can learn from each other and apply, you know, different kinds of therapies perhaps to different groups. All right. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, so if, uh, Okay, so I think that that kind of wraps up this scientific questions. Rihanna, do you have anything to add or ask? Um, I just had a small, small, quick question. Is if correct me if I'm wrong, that in the past it was been thought that the non-motor symptoms came after the general, like dementia, came after the motor symptoms with the different BRAC stages of Parkinson's disease. So this is really interesting that these like cognitive issues that you're finding now precede the motor symptoms. Do you think that somehow along the way that like the neurons are degenerating or some something is happening all through the, the disease that somehow goes from depression and anxiety to and res- uh, d- depression, anxiety, resilience to um, neurodegeneration and, and dementia eventually? It's so I... It's a big question, but I, but I don't see them necessarily all on a continuum. I think it could be that what's happening in dopamine neurons, because they are particularly active and particularly sensitive to neural degeneration may be almost separable from some of the other um, parts of the disease. So we know that like um, rescuing with L-DOPA doesn't necessarily help people with depression. Mm, and and serotonin neurons also degenerate at least partially, but there's, and now we know that there are these connectivity differences in glutamatergic pathways also. So I think there may be multiple factors kind of going on in parallel and treating just one thing like raising L-DOPA levels doesn't help the other symptoms at all. I see. That's very, that's very interesting for what a future, what the future like 
cure all for Parkinson's might be involved what you're just saying like maybe multiple targeting multiple areas or some drug that targets everything that is involved I mean obviously we'd all like the magic pill that yeah (laughs) and you know maybe if we hit it early enough we could do that I'm not sure yeah all right thanks so much for your your great answers so uh you you know, have this opportunity now to ask these questions with your lab because uh, through, you know, maybe a little bit of luck, but a lot of resiliency, uh, you made it to this point. So we'd like to ask you some career questions um, and just advice for the upcoming generations. Uh, So Rihanna, if you want to start off. Yeah. um, So a big question that PhD students are encountering is what is next after graduate school? We're getting a lot of advice from mentors and colleagues about the pros and cons of academia, industry, and other science-related fields, which we consider in our decision. And some PIs have never wavered from their determination to be a PI, and others have had to take quite some bit of time before figuring out this is their life path. So was there a point for you where you decided that this is it, I'm going to go for it? Or um, did it happen, was it more of a gradual process for you? So... For me, the, the, the point was pretty early. It was in grad school. And so like a lot of PhD students, my project wasn't going very well. And everybody else's project was seemed to be moving really fast. And mine wasn't moving anywhere. And nothing was working. And I got really frustrated. And um, so... Good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I think it's every graduate student goes through this. And so I... Um, I was at a medical school, I was at University of California, Irvine. And um, at that point, a lot of the graduate education was intermixed with the medical school education. So a lot of my friends were med students. And so I thought, okay, I've been taking all the same classes. If I felt like transferring to med school, this would be the time. And so I started volunteering at a clinic and kind of seeing if I would like that. And um, I did it for quite a while. And I started doing a little exposing myself more to interacting with patients, wondering. And what I discovered was I was really interested in the patient histories. I was interested in meeting the patients. I kind of wanted to know what they had, but I didn't have much patience for them as human beings that needed treatment in the room right then. And it's not like I misbehaved, but I realized that I'm just not a people person. I wanted to know more about what was wrong and how to fix it than I did want to spend time with them. And because a lot of them just wanted to come and chat and talk to another human being for a while, because maybe they'd been with sick kids all day or something like that. Right. And I just, I think to be a really great physician, you have to be really willing to listen all the time to everything because you don't know where buried in that entire conversation, the really important stuff might come out. Yeah, exactly. I, wasn't, I wasn't good at that. And I realized that the things I was interested in were the things that were more relevant to my lab life. And so that was kind of the point at which I thought, okay, I'm clearly more interested in being in the lab and the science part, but it made me maybe a little more proactive in trying to get help to accomplish my ideas. So I started reaching out to other scientists for help rather than just trying to beat my head against a wall by myself. And that, so in the end, it was a good experience to go through, but that was the only time I really kind of uh, 
wavered from this path, but I should couch that with saying that at every step, I've always been looking at other alternatives because you always feel like, is it going to last? Am I going to get my grant? If I don't get my grant, should, you know, um, gosh, you know, for a long time, there wasn't very good, uh, we, we joked about there used to not be very many like taco trucks and stuff. And we thought, man, if we just drove a taco truck <laughs> here in Harlem, we would, now there are tons of trucks, but <laughs> at, at, there was a point at which we thought that whole environment hadn't reached Manhattan yet. And we thought we could like make a lot of money doing stuff like that. So that never goes away, but I think that's common for, for most people. Yeah. Often you look at these other careers and you're like, I could be making twice as much for half the education. And yet here I am, <laughs> you know, and you just kind of keep coming, coming back to it. Like, like you did. Um, do you think that the experience with the patients uh, maybe influenced your decision to study a, a clinical disease? I don't know. That's interesting. Cause I mean, for a long time, I, I've been focused very much on basic research, but I'll have to admit that being involved in something that you think even in an ancillary way, just contributing a tiny piece of something to someone who might benefit is really exciting. And so, um, it's only recently that I've been part of something that I can envision maybe how we might in a small way be contributing to a therapy. And that, that's a big deal. And I think that it has, um, yeah, I, 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 I missed that earlier on. I, I think that it's been really fun to think about that. And it's been kind of pushed on me here at Sinai because I am next door to and surrounded by physicians. And so I hear from physicians all the time. And that really has helped me kind of couch my questions more in the context, if I can ask X or I can ask Y and Y has a direct link to patients, I should be asking Y. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, some, some decades ago, some people may have been a little surprised to hear that a, a woman wasn't interested in sitting down and chatting with a patient because that's kind of the stereotype, right? And she's more interested in the actual science and analytical thinking and things like that. So that, that gender bias is getting better in academia and in, in general. Uh, but there are still some challenges that we as women face in getting, in getting up through the ranks. So what did you find was different for you as a woman in academia? And is there any advice that you can share with the next up and coming generation of women scientists? So I, I know it was different for me than for my predecessors, right? And so I, it was, I wasn't, it was in graduate school that I had my first female professors, like undergrad science teachers, none of them were, were female. And it wasn't that there weren't any female uh, scientists at the institution. It's just that they were so underrepresented. It was rare to get anybody but a guy. Um, and that clearly has completely changed. And just by sheer numbers, um, things have changed a lot. So you're not the only woman on the committee. You're one of many people on the committee. And being the only one is quite, quite different from being the one, one of a group. And so that's changed things immensely. It's changed the way decisions are being made. I still think, so for me, 
I don't know that it, my being a woman definitely didn't hurt me getting a leg up to get into science. Um, I do think that there's lots of evidence for it, that it was harder to get grants. It was just harder to get funding and the funding that you got tended to be for less money. And that was a problem for a long time. I think it's again, a problem that's going away. Um, and the thing that I've learned is that to ask, to, own, to don't, don't let anybody talk you out of like, if you really need a piece of equipment or X dollars to, to do an experiment, ask for it. Don't let somebody talk you down like, oh, your reviewers are going to hate that. You know, it's like, if you need it, ask for it. If you need uh, a promotion, ask for it. If you're overwhelmed with teaching, you need to come in with a plan. I can't teach this class anymore. I can do this higher level thing instead. I find that it's easiest for me if I choose something ahead of time that I know that I can do or that I want to do so that when I say that I don't want to do X, I can say, but I will do Y. Um, that helps, but um, it's gotten better. And just when I think everything is like better, better, I something happens and you're like, oh, it's still, it's still a problem, but it, it's yeah. definitely, I love how many female colleagues I have now, particularly junior colleagues, lots and lots and senior people that are senior to me too. And so, I mean, across the board, it's a much better landscape than it was even five years ago. Yeah. I mean, how, so there are even more women grad students now than I think men, the problem is that, you know, the quote leaky pipeline. Um, do you have any, any perspectives on why that might be and how to tighten that up? Or is that, you know, is it just the typical child rearing uh, issues that the services aren't provided or is it more than that? It's, it's kind of, I mean, I do think it's a, it's a combination of things. It is true that like, services aren't provided. Um, there are, but it seems to happen to people who don't have kids and ones that do have kids. So it doesn't just boil down to women taking uh, hit more of a hit with child rearing. Um, there's still, even in the older guard, I think they still manage expectations in a way that are lower for women and higher for men in ways that don't acknowledge women for their contributions or don't really accept the fact that they like, okay, you needed time off because you were having a baby, but they know that and they acknowledge it and they give it now, but they also intellectually somewhere in the back of their mind, they penalized you for it. And so yeah. those penalties accumulate and I think it's getting better, but the, the idea is that they've given you that break but they expect your productivity to be the same. And some of this is driven by NIH. NIH doesn't let you take like, okay, I wanna take a break, for, you know, a six month break from my grant because I just had a baby or something like, you can't do that. You're just not allowed to do that. And nobody's allowed to like write a preamble saying I just had a baby so my productivity isn't as good this year. You just can't do that. And so those things kind of, mess with, uh, it's like 
particularly to medical school, our rubrics to achieve things are matched very closely with our NIH grant dollars and our ability to get grants. And so some of this is driven by NIH. That's tough. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, I think it's getting better, but it's, and so, I mean, if for anybody that really wants to do academic science, you know, it's by all means, in fact, this year I've heard that is the best year ever for applying for jobs. Yeah, I, uh, I've heard that too. It's a postdoc market, so. It's a postdoc <laughs> market right now, which is high time, right? And so that's great. And I, it might last for a while because, you know, I think, well, it might last for a number of different factors. And that's a good thing because it's been a buyer's market for a long time. And so I think that it'd be, it's nice to have postdocs more in control of their, where they go and their negotiations and all that. Um, but there are also so many more science related opportunities out there than just academics now. And so I think that that's growing and there's a greater appreciation for what scientific training can do and, and what, I mean, just having gone through a PhD, you think differently. You know how to focus hard on a problem for a long time and to think about it. In fact, that's what we like to do. And that kind of mode of thinking and kind of critical thinking is hard to teach. And so I think it's a, it's a very much a marketable skill. And so there's some statistics somewhere that I can't remember where um, unemployment amongst PhDs is exceptionally low. So while we can worry and fret that we don't get exactly what we might've expected to in the first place, we're very unlikely to be unemployed. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, often if somebody has, has accumulated a lot of knowledge on a particular topic over even a lifetime, they're like, oh, you know, I, I probably have a PhD in, in history or this or that. And I think to myself, nah, <laughs> it's not really what the PhD is, right? It's not just an accumulation of knowledge. It's an experience for sure. And it definitely uh, rewires your brain in certain ways that are, are valuable <laughs> for employers, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, just that ability to ask the right question. And you're right, you can accumulate a lot of knowledge, but if somebody said, I accumulated all this knowledge and you say, what's next? What would you ask next? And how would you test that? Not, it's a way of thinking that requires a lot of training. Yeah. Yeah, that was all very encouraging and <laughs> light at the end of the tunnel, definitely for us. And speaking along this um, idea of the PhD life, hearing that you actually had that period where nothing was working and everything was just, you were just felt despondent is really surprising given your prolific number of publications in general and specifically during your PhD, which is very impressive. So do you have any advice for current PhD students such as me and all of us out there on how to navigate these PhD years in addition to prioritize mental health, in addition to produce papers and be successful? Yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, it was nothing, nothing, nothing worked. And then everything worked in a short period of time. Mm, and okay. so, which was great. And um, so I had a 
part, I guess the, the, the background would be doing a lot of bench work will eventually pay off. And so, yes, you have to have those 90 experiments you trash for the 10 that you work, that work. But if those 10 are really tight and built on those other 90 that you didn't have quite right, man, they can answer a lot of questions. And so I also was, um, my advisor is an, was an outstanding writer. And so he was really good at rapidly turning around what we were learning and framing it into a paper in ways that taught me a lot about how to write about science. But that also helped me be productive just because um, I'd have some sort of interesting finding and he would be able to immediately relate it to this like huge literature set that I didn't even know about. And it's, it's easier now because of the internet and you can have access to more things and whatnot, but um, there's no substitute in terms of productivity for being able to write fast. And it's, it's an undervalued skill, but um, really I think helps if you can frame your ideas quickly and put it into a context that people can identify with and, and understand that's all you need to do, but it's not trivial, right? It's hard to, to write well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, your earlier advice is definitely something I need to hear right now because I've been a year of cell culture and nothing is working. So this is all very encouraging. Thank you. When it when it does finally work, do you even trust it at that point? You're like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> How do you expect to go out in the streets and parade? And it's true. You spend a couple of days thinking that really, that couldn't have worked. That just, no, no, well, no. And it's, you suspect, but that's good. It's like your own um, suspicions are so high that when you finally accept your data, actually that's the thing that happens in people's own labs. Mm -hmm. Typically as a student, you've gone through the gauntlet and it's been so difficult. And then you have your own lab and your standards are so high that a lot of times it's very difficult for a junior professor to release their first paper because they're expecting such like perfection. And so it's, that's a, a really common phenomenon to, that I see. So speaking of high standards, do you think, I mean, maybe it's fact, I don't know, that the standards have gotten so high to publish a paper, not just from a PI's perspective, but from a journal's perspective because of the availability of technologies and the internet and all this different knowledge where it's like, well, you have the resources, then, you know, why don't you have it in a paper, even though we're still humans with 24 hours in a day. So how do you reconcile that? I mean, I can get on a soapbox, but I think that the journals have too much power right now. And so, because it also influences who people hire, where you publish and how you publish. And so, yeah. I feel that right now they have way too much power in dictating who publishes and what kinds of papers are published. Um, and it quashes some of the most, I think, original ideas in that the original ideas are permitted within a certain sphere, but they're not really permitted within another sphere. And, and there's always a certain degree of what's popular. And so I do think that there is room for publishing things that are tight, cute, things you are, that are solid in smaller journals. And I 
as a frequent grant reviewer, I do not like ever look down on people who are publishing from more modest journals, you know, looking towards, you know, there's a whole tier of kind of mid-range journals that are great. They're absolutely great. You know, the science I read in them is excellent and I don't necessarily need a, you know, to know the transcriptome of every single thing that I, every single observation that I, that I have. And so I, I think that the demands have gotten too high and sometimes the demands are such that they're asking for things that aren't really useful to interpreting the data. And that I find really frustrating because it's a lot of work and a lot of effort that a PI has to put in to answer something that doesn't really move anything forward. And so that's my soapbox. I, I think that the standards have gotten too high, too difficult for people without, with small labs. You know, a lot of people run these 1R01 labs. It's really hard to get a cell paper out of a 1R01 lab. Yeah. Yeah, and like, like you're saying, these mid-tiered journals, you know, as long as the science is solid, it's just that the story is smaller, right? But yeah. that's just as good. You, know, you, you need solid science to, to build off of. And yeah, it's not as well recognized sometimes for kind of the, the bigger institutions or, you know, places that you're trying to apply. So, I mean, I, I think that is getting better as well. I think people are, you know, kind of acknowledging that, but. Bioarchives is helping. Yes. Yeah, that too. So we'll, we'll see what else people come up with in the next few years to, to try to, to take that down a notch. When approaching a difficult problem, it's important to keep trying and additionally to look at it from new angles. Dr. Benson's work reminds us of this as she and her lab strive to unlock the key features of Parkinson's mechanism and symptoms. We learned that, remarkably, both the genetic and the environmental factors can trigger differences in circuit and synapse formation early in the life of those who will be affected by Parkinson's more salient symptoms decades later. It's these insights that help scientists and medical doctors alike to develop new treatments for these diseases that disrupt the lives not just of patients, but of their loved ones. Becoming a part of the teams who work on this research is a challenge itself. But as Dr. Benson expressed to us, the journey of a scientist shapes us in a way that prepares us to persevere even when things aren't working, when we feel like things don't make sense, or the environment doesn't seem to be in our favor. But eventually, we learn how to make that 90% failure rate not a failure at all, but a lesson in how to make that 10% a breakthrough in our understanding. Your hosts for this episode were Rihanna and Joanna. Thanks for joining us today. Visit our website, neuronair.org, for more resources about today's episode and our guest, Dr. Deanna Benson. You can follow us on social media at NeuronRCast to leave comments on today's episode or to get in touch with us directly, email us at neuronairpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and review us. See you next time.